once my way of making a living my entire life really not just money but the way i valued my time moved outside and onto the farm rain took on a different meaning and i had been you know learning to farm on other people's farms up in new england and it was amazing to be an hourly worker and to not have a ton of accountability, not as, as much riding on it as, as the farmer themselves. And so I slept like a champ because I was working like a dog. I would just exhaust myself and, and sleep really well. Once I was paying bills and running a farm and relying on the stability of the system and structure that I thought I understood, rain took on a different meaning. And so I didn't sleep through nights when it would rain. I would think about my chickens in the field. I would think about my sheep getting wet. I, I would think about what it would mean for tomorrow's day of chores. And I would lay awake and still do that to this day. Because <laughs> none of us now can run away or avoid the realities of what it is outdoors. Because uh, even when we're inside, that's a, that's a present piece of our reality. What were some of the things you did on the farm over the decades to sort of mitigate the intensities? Well, you know, we moved into a farm that had been row crops, you know, annual crops year after year after year. And so instituting perennials was a huge piece of it. <laughs> I remember those first couple of years of our farm, we were planting in trees. You know, we had all these grand ideas like, oh, we're finally where we're going to be rather than moving around. So let's plant oak trees. Maybe one day they'll be huge. And oak trees are beautiful and I loved them, but when we would mow the pasture and miss spots because the pigs were in the way of the mower, trees would grow there and they would be trees that wanted to be there and they would be eight times as tall as the trees that I had planted, you know, in a span of just months. And so the big plants that we were letting live year after year after year got really good at drinking the water that was in our soil. There was one year we were on a three-week butcher schedule. Every three weeks we were going to the butcher and the rain was on the same schedule. And so when you can't drive out to the pasture to collect your animals to go to the butcher, you gotta bring the animals to the road. And so our, our little 13-acre field wasn't huge, but when you're building alleys of electric net to move the pigs from the back of the pasture all the way up to the road, and you gotta do it over the course of two days, it feels a lot bigger than it does when you're just thinking about it on a, a Google map. So. Yeah, once we, once we realized how to choreograph the dance in such a way that we could preempt rather than respond, that was, a, that was a huge piece of the puzzle. Could you actually introduce yourselves? Yes. I'm sorry. Sure. Um, I'm Liz Brownlee. And I'm Nate Brownlee. And, and this is our farm. So this is Nightfall Farm, and we're on my family's land here in Jennings County, Indiana. What was the hardest part in those years? Well, just the fear. You know, like, we didn't know how it was going to turn out then. I wish I could have known, All right, that, that was always the thing. If I had only known then what I know now, then I could have probably been more ambitious um, because we could have gone the right direction more quickly. And I could have been less scared and stressed out by climate change uh, because I would have known, like, oh, people are going to come around. But at the time, I didn't know. And... Um, you know, when you're a farmer who's, you know, in your six of your business or something, like, how do you know where to invest, right? Is it worth 
putting another $10,000 into fences that, you know, those fields may not be grazable in 15 years because it's going to be always too wet or too hot or too something. Um, should you pack up your bags and move to Michigan because the climate projections look better there than they do in Indiana? Should you just give up altogether and go to London and protest? You remember the protesters, the uh, extinction protesters, right? Like we talked about that. Should we just go? Because is this working or not? I don't know. And what are the what are the long-term prospects of a farm in Indiana? We didn't know. And that was scary. Probably the coolest indicator of life returning to this place, I would say. Because, you know, growing up, this was all corn and soybeans. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of life in a corn or soybean field. It's basically just that crop. Um, when we're out here, we see tons of different birds. We great blue herons that fly over and we see bugs and spiders of all shapes and sizes and little snakes and big snakes and we assume that all that life means there's a food web that's reforming here and that's encouraging to us. We'll take these buckets Nate. So you're gonna, what do you think, like a half bucket in each and we'll take it over to whoever needs it? Ah, uh, not even, but yeah. Okay. You guys wanna on the other side of the street, you don't have to... Sure. Yeah, let's go around. This crawdad hole. Yeah, so we sit really wet here. And mm -hmm. I only recently learned that not everybody knows what that means. So okay. <laughs> uh, if you sit wet, that means your soils are very um, heavy clay soils. Where The water table is really high. We're right by the Muscatatuck River. It's just beyond the next tree line. And um, essentially the, the crawdads uh, <laughs> are prolific here because it's a wet clay heavy place and that's the habitat they like so actually when I was a kid my dad would answer the phone crawdad holler um, and we thought about naming the farm crawdad holler but we thought like I don't know if that actually sounds like a serious business um, <laughs> maybe it sounds like a party um, so we went with nightfall farm instead Um, some of climate change we couldn't stop, right? It was too late to stop some of the impacts. So we still, you know, we get these heavy rains, um, these downpours that happen. We have more intense heat in the summer and crazier ups and downs throughout the year, you know, so it'll be June something and it's 68 degrees, even though it ought to be 80 and it'll be February and it'll be also 68 degrees. But we stopped the worst of it. People started to see climate change happening in their lives. They started to see, you know, it's in the middle of June and they couldn't plant their crops. That was becoming a real problem. And so they said, we've got to change something. And so they started thinking about soil health. And over time, they ended up thinking about climate. And we were able to, to halt climate change. And it wasn't any big technological fix. You know, that pie in the sky stuff that they were talking about back in the, you know, 2000, 2015 range. People finally gave up on it because it wasn't going to happen. It was too expensive. What really happened was a total revolution in farming because people started to see that we could sequester a lot of carbon with our grazing lands. And there were these farmers back in the like 2015, 2018 range that were doing some really cool on the ground trials in like South Dakota and California. And they were showing how much carbon we, we could sequester on our grazing lands, on our pastures. And then farmers like Nate and I started to pay attention to that and started to mimic those practices and and then our neighbors started to mimic those practices, and, and it, it trickled in pretty quickly. And we pulled out a whole bunch of carbon from the atmosphere, and here we are, and we're doing all right.
Now we want some trees out here. You can see we've got tree rows, um, some of which we've planted and some we just let come up. Um, you know, it gets hot here in Indiana and hotter all the time. So we need shade for the sheep and for us. <laughs> Basically everywhere you see a tree row used to be a like a drainage ditch. And so we just planted trees along the ditch cool. and, um, and we're adding more kind of all the time. We've been adding some willows and especially wet places and um, bald cypress from the conservation nursery. So you can get like a hundred trees for 30 bucks, right. you know? That's so great. Did you, did you have moments of despair? Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. On a pretty regular basis. Right. And, and how wouldn't you, right? Uh, so, you know, you look at a forecast that says rain for the next 10 days, two inches today and, and more tomorrow. Right. Um, as a farmer, I know exactly what that means for the health of my pasture, for the health of my chickens, right. For my ability to do chores. So I remember a night where, you know, we were up until 2 a.m. moving chickens and chicken tractors to a drier place because we had to butcher the coming Wednesday. And if we didn't get those chickens to a better position before the next day, maybe they wouldn't drown, but we'd have no way to get out to them to put them in the livestock trailer to take them to the butcher. And that just doesn't work. So we stayed up till 2 a.m. moving chickens. And that's just not a very, that's not a way to run a business with that amount of inconsistency and, and fear and stress. I remember at the time thinking like, oh, if we could only start our farm in like the 80s, we'd be like established now and our soil health would be so much further along and, you know, we'd, we'd be okay. But we're okay now. Hey, Nate, can I help? I bet he's just finishing up. So these are the meat chickens. Yeah, and what might be good, let me switch out with him. Mm -hmm. You can chat with him for a little bit. Sure. He can tell you about the meat chickens and then... Mm -hmm. um, and then you guys can come in. Maybe yeah. I'll go. Maybe I'll pop in and start on the barn chores. Okay. You can go in with them if you want. Might as well. Yeah. So they've got grain, water, and they're also feeding on. Yeah. So insects and things. Uh, and little frogs. Uh, cool. I've seen one with a crawdad claw, but I didn't see them get the crawdad. Uh -huh. So yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're opportunistic. They'll take what they can find. Right. Uh, and one of the things I really like is when they find something and it's too big for them to eat because they don't have hands to help pick it apart, their instinctual behavior is to make noise and squeak and run around and all the other birds follow it. And so they just pull it apart through sharing, but also kind of a, a fun game of keep away. That's really, uh, that's fun on the farmer and then I think, you know, they benefit from getting to have a bite-sized morsel rather than something they can't eat, but I don't know if it's as fun for them as it is for me. <laughs> and then how old do they get? We do ours for six weeks. Uh, so it's good for cash flow for the business. Uh, it's great for the pasture. Uh, usually you can see a dark green path where the tractors have pulled. And so you can see the little light green spaces between the tractors where they haven't fertilized it as well. So yeah, they, they've... And do you like move it every day? We move them every day, yep. Uh -huh. Yeah, so they move forward one length of the tractor. So they're getting a, a new 12 feet every day. Uh -huh. And you know, they leave behind this manure carpet and that turns into gold. Uh, manure can be a waste product if you got too much of it, but if you utilize the employees to spread it out for you, then shoot, it's a pretty sweet thing. Back in 2020, there was a farm that we were, we were really good friends with those guys, still are. They had been all commodity crops. They were doing all non-GMO at the time, which was kind of crazy. 
but they still sold into the commodity market, but they started dabbling in local and regional sales. And that's what carried them through the hard years. And they, so they just kept doubling down on that strategy and their neighbors saw it and they saw it working. And so they, they took notice and, and they started adding, you know, so they started that farm added, you know, popcorn and they started selling some of their beef locally and they added small grains that they could sell at market and ground their own wheat and that sort of thing. And, and then, you know, they'd have neighbors who would add oats and they started grinding oats for oatmeal and they'd have another neighbor who had been selling dairy on the open commodity market for a generation and then they started making ice cream and butter and everybody likes ice cream and butter, you know, so it worked. Those things, farmers aren't, we're not always quick to change, but when you can see your neighbor do it and it works, that's very encouraging. I think they called it over the back fence conservation. So it works. Crawdad holes? Is that what you said? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I've never seen them before. Chimneys. Yeah, chimneys. Chim yeah, Char right. Crowded that makes chimneys. sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. I think back to the farmers markets, sitting around at the farmers markets back then, and the old timers. Uh, I remember Butch and uh, John's dad, and then those guys. You know, they'd be talking about like, oh, I, I remember when it was this wet in 1967 or whatever. And, um, and they would just talk about like, well, 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 it'll be all right. And they're up down, up years and down years. And that's the thing that farmers have always said, like next year will be better. Like <laughs> it's hard to be a pessimist and a farmer at the same time. Right. I think farmers just didn't want to think about it, you know, because if, if you start, started to think about it, um, it was a very serious problem for your business model and your identity and your business and your, but your family as well. So I think the economics though, or maybe what finally got people to wake up um, because farmers started to see not just a few bad years, right? They saw n noticeable losses year after year and you can't argue with the numbers after a while and you can't take a loss year after year after year after a while. And so I think that's what got people to pay attention. And on a personal level, did you feel despair? Absolutely. I absolutely felt despair. Um, I just couldn't understand why other people all around me, you know, my neighbors and my legislators and everyone in between, um, couldn't see the problem. It just didn't make any sense to me. Like, don't, don't they care about my future? Don't they care about their own futures? Don't they care about their grandkids? I couldn't make sense of it. I just wanted to shake people. <laughs> like, just any random person I saw, just take them aside and say, please, like, don't you get it? You know, I joked about farmers can't be pessimists, but I'm absolutely a pessimist. <laughs> so, yeah, it's stressful. I mean, but Nate and I, you know, we always used to debate about this. Like, does change happen? Is the most effective change big change or small change? And um, we, we decided that our farm was going to be the change that we could affect. And so that's what we did. And here we are. It's 2060 and we're doing all right. Because we sit so wet, cattle are a hard fit right? They're big animals. Yeah, right. um, and so if it's wet, they're up to their knees in mud oh, at yeah. all times, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas sheep are much lighter animals, but they're still grazers. And what we want here is pasture um, because you can sequester a lot of carbon with pasture. You can raise a lot of good food with pasture. Um, and we enjoy working outside with our animals, right? So yeah. people ask us like, why don't you grow vegetables? And we, we sort of say like, well, I like pigs more than I like carrots. 
that she, her name's Gracie. She's a mom, mm-hmm. one of our mamas. And, you know, she was just eating a little uh, ash tree sapling and now she's munching on some grass. And, you know, there are some flower weed type things, some briars in here, some clovers. And all those things have different, you know, chemical makeups. And actually the diversity of diet gives them a diversity of types of fats. And that's what turns into flavor. Nate can tell you more about the science, but that's the sum of it. And I think that's really cool. If you guys could describe what it's like there now. Oh, it's so nice. We can pop into the shade anytime we want. Sit on the swing. Oh, we have this full size swing, like a porch swing, but it's hang it's hanging in a big old sycamore tree that we planted. Yeah, back in what would have that been? Well, we didn't plant it. You're right. That was one that we just let grow starting back in 2014. It's a big, beautiful tree now. We used um, to call that the pigwoods. Oh, that's right. Because <laughs> the pigs were in that paddock, so we had to mow around them. And then all of a sudden, next year, without us planning on it, we had a hundred by hundred square foot section of cottonwoods and sycamores that yeah. it was dense as could be those first couple of years, super dark underneath, and they started out competing each other. And, and the sycamore was the grand champion of yeah, them all. Yeah, it was the winner. And we've got, gosh, how many sheep do we have these days? You didn't count noses this morning? (laughs) So we've got sheep grazing um, here and on the hill farm, which feels really good because that's the part of the farm that has really nice um, old woods. And so we get get more time these days to go over there and um, hike around because we have to go check on the animals and that's good. Um, And, you know, when we moved back here, there were gullies almost um, up to my waist. And um, that land has really healed and come back to life as well. This is How to Survive the Future, a show about today from an imagined tomorrow. The show is produced by me, Alex Chambers, in collaboration with Allison Quantz, whose editorial vision and all-around insight made the show possible. Allison also came up with our title. Our theme music is Soft Skin by Amy Olsner. We have additional music from Ramon Monras Sender, Backward Collective and Last Ledges, and Airport People. Thanks to Molly Weiler and Kate Young for additional editorial support. Special thanks to Liz and Nate Brownlee for imagining themselves into the future. How to Survive the Future is produced in partnership with Indiana Humanities, with funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities and with further support from the Writers Guild at Bloomington. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Tom Strife from Indiana Humanities. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to think, read, and talk with other Hoosiers, find us online at indianahumanities.org or at inhumanities on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.